Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. I know you're seated at tables with one another, but this is not a connection Sunday. Don't be alarmed. We won't make you actually talk to another person today. Um, But we're in circles today because it's a reflection Sunday. What that means is the kids go to direct check-in, and we invite all the adults in the church and all the youth that are with us to have a time of actually engaging God in quiet and in reflectiveness. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Today we're going to continue on the Life on Life series, and uh, I want to just keep reminding us that the whole thrust of this series is not just for you to think about your own faith, but to think about the way that you are going to influence others in the faith as well. If you're a parent or if you're in a relationship, the primary people that I have in mind for you are the people you're closest to in family to begin there that you would have a spiritual impact on the people who are closest to you relationally. If your own partner in a romantic relationship or marriage is not growing in their faith because of your influence, that's a great loss. And if your children are filling their bellies but their souls are not growing because of you, you have been less than a fully faithful parent to that child. And I don't say that in a spirit of accusation, but I'm, I'm inviting you to think about what a difference it will make if you begin to accept God's call to invest in the life of other people. The message this morning is how we first ourselves arrive at a place of contentment in life and then teach this to others. You know, the first time I ever preached on the topic of commitment, or I'm sorry, contentment at our church was the last time I actually preached on it, and that was the day Zoe was born. So I was actually looking back at my notes from 11 years ago, and I realized that Zoe had been born that morning at seven something, and that I came straight from the hospital to the church to preach that message. So you'll forgive me if I, that whole message is a blur in my memory. So I, I had to read the message again, and uh, And I realized that there are a lot of common themes between what I spoke then and what I want to share this morning, even though I was drawing from different passages. I want to look at the text with you this morning. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. And the title is based on a very familiar phrase, godliness with contentment. Here's what the text says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Can we agree for a minute that most people who go into ministry as a career don't do it because of the big bucks? Now, this church takes very adequate care of our family. I have no complaints about our ability to eat or provide But most people don't go into ministry to make a lot of money. And yet the case is, since the time of Jesus, that there have always been people who recognize the tremendous power in religious work to influence other people. 
And if you set your heart to use religion to make yourself rich, the truth is you really can get very rich doing religious work. Uh, I'll just pick on one person, and I don't mean to pick on him in a mean-spirited way, but just to illustrate for you that when Paul talks about, in verse 5, just before our text, when he talks about people who are religious leaders, and yet they're using their show of godliness to become rich, that he's not just talking about some vague theoretical, but that there really are people in this world who understand that if you are good at the religious game, you hold an incredible power to control the way people act. Here, there's a guy named Kenneth Copeland. Are you familiar with him? You might have seen him when you had insomnia, couldn't sleep. Late at night, he's, he's on some of these Christian TV networks. And he's a prosperity gospel preacher. And the basic MO of his ministry is, he says, even if you're down to your last dollar, if you send it to me, God will honor that seed of faith and give you a 100-fold return on your investment. Now, you wouldn't think that would work, but amazingly, it does work, and I've looked, I've looked online trying to ascertain his net worth because he consistently comes out on the top of the list of religious leaders who have the highest net worth, and by most estimates, his net worth is estimated to be in the neighborhood of $750 million. In fact, he has a fleet of airplanes, including this one, which is a Cessna 750 Citation X private jet. Uh, retail price about $17.5 million, nicely equipped about $20 million. That's one of the planes in his fleet. And even though he has a huge net worth, when, it, when he wanted to purchase his plane, he didn't just buy it with his own money. What he said to his supporters is, God wants me to have a greater reach into the nations, and I can't be riding commercial to do that. I need you all in faith to help me get this plane. So even that, though he could afford it 20 times over, he asked his donors, who make far less, to give this money. And here's the crazy part. They did. $20 million came in the span of a very short time, and he bought this jet with their money as they believed that they would somehow see a 100-fold return on their investment. Listen, I watched a video where he, in his own lips, testified at a 2008 conference that his income the previous year, and he's saying this in front of his donors without batting an eye, I made $100 million last year, and in the 41 years I've been in ministry, $1.4 billion has come into this ministry. So I'm no longer in the millionaire flow, I'm in the billionaire flow. How do you stand before your donors and boast about being a billionaire? It boggles my mind. But here's the thing. I didn't see 15,000 people stand up and walk out. I watched thousands of people cheer him for that boast. Why am I saying that? Because I'm trying to tell you that if you set out to use religion for other ends, it's entirely possible you will succeed that there is tremendous power in faith to manipulate people. And I recognize that even though I'm a very small fish in a very small pond, in this church I also have a certain measure of influence, and I have been so uh, weighed down by this sense of responsibility to be careful how that influence is used. 
I haven't always done it well, but I want to tell you that it is possible to use God as a tool in your hand to make yourself very wealthy. And so in the verse just preceding this one, Paul calls out these false teachers in the church at Ephesus, and he says, there are guys doing this. They are, here's how he says it, making a show of godliness as just a way to become wealthy. But the truth is, it's not just false teachers and bad religious leaders who are guilty of this sin, because the truth is, I think it's very common for the everyday average believer to use this faith not as a blessing in itself, but as the means by which my earthly life situation will be made better. I don't think it takes a Kenneth Copeland to try to use God to improve my lot in life. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't want your lot in life to improve, but I'm saying there's a difference between asking God to help me and using God to better myself. And that line is crossed very subtly. You may not always realize you're doing it, but I think a lot of people have done that over the years in the church. Not just our church. I'm not picking on just our church. I'm saying it's a very common thing for Christians to say, God, if I'm faithful to you, I fully expect that my situation will improve and that you will help me with this and you will help me with this and you will help me with this. And in parentheses, the unspoken words are, if you don't help me improve, I will know that you're not really faithful. That knowing you is not enough. That it's always Jesus plus something equals blessing. And I know this to be true because I'm in that position as a pastor to say to people who are in suffering and trials, listen, the fact that you know Jesus just by itself is a blessing. Wouldn't you agree? And they look at me like I just blew a fart in the room. It's like, Man, is that all you got? Knowing, do you know what I'm going through, what I'm asking God for? And you're going to tell me that knowing Jesus is enough, that it's a blessing. And I could tell, I can tell that for that person in their heart, that really wasn't enough. There's a guy who wrote a book called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. I love that title. I don't know if we really believe that fully, but the truth is Jesus plus nothing else still equals everything. And I don't think we're ever going to arrive at a place of contentment in our hearts if we don't realize that just knowing Jesus is an infinite blessing. If I know Jesus and yet I still need something else to make me feel that I'm blessed, then I have somehow fallen short of the full value of the gospel which he has given us. And so God, uh, so Paul opens this teaching with this phrase, and I love the way the New American Standard Bible translates it. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In other words, our godliness or our faith, godliness I would define as a right relationship with God and a likeness to Jesus Christ. Spiritual health, that our godliness is of great gain if it is also accompanied by contentment with worldly things. So how does a person get there? Because if you're only using your godliness to get more wealth, you can do it, but that's really underutilizing the power of why God gives us the gospel. It's almost like using a 
gold bullion as a doorstop. It's a stupid example, but it just occurred to me. A good delivery bar of gold is about 400 troy ounces. That thing, even though it doesn't look that big, weighs over 27 pounds. It would be a tremendously effective doorstop. In the midst of a hurricane, it could almost keep your door open. And you could say, I have found the greatest doorstop ever made. But do you also know that that bar of gold can be converted into about a half million dollars in cash? It could pay off my mortgage and feed a thousand children for a year. And I'm using it to hold open my door. Now, we would laugh at anybody who's such a yokel they would do this. Look what I found in the attic. It's awesome. It holds my door open. And you would laugh at what a complete missed opportunity that that represents. And yet, when we think that the reason God gave us the gospel is just so we can better our lives here on earth, we have missed completely the blessing and the power of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let me make a confession. For the longest time, when I used to hear people teach on contentment, on Christian contentment, I thought that what they were really preaching was a mind game, where what a good Christian does is he lowers his expectations. That the goal of being a good Christian is to pretend that you are satisfied with things that you're not satisfied with. So here's what I really believe. I thought being a good Christian is like, oh, I make very little money, but you know what? I'm okay with that. My car is a piece of junk, but I'm very okay with that. And that even though I don't feel that that's true, as a good Christian, I'm supposed to act like that's true. I'm supposed to say the words. And so I, and that's because growing up, I really didn't know Jesus until much later in my life. I was 18 when I really came to know Jesus. I was 24 when I fully surrendered my life to him. So I didn't actually know Jesus, even though I was bathed in the waters of the church and of the Christian religion for so many years. And I heard people talk about how people, are, they're saying, you could be happy in just Jesus. And I'm like, that's a lie. I've never felt that. How can you act like your stupid van with a flat tire and your raggedy house and your out-of-date, out-of-fashion clothes are okay with you? You're just pretending that you're content because no one could be content with what you have in life. I really thought that, but then as I grew as a Christian, I realized it's actually not a mind game. It is real. There is such a thing as true contentment with worldly things. I didn't realize it was possible, but I only discovered the reality of contentment as I grew in the depth of my relationship personally with Jesus Christ. Here's what I think contentment is, really. It's the ability to say about something in my life that where I am is enough. It's good enough. Contentment is the ability to look at some area of our lives and say, you know, I know I'm not at the top of the the field in this, but where I am right now, I'm okay with that. It's enough. Because we're not infinite beings, all of us, experience contentment in some things and discontent in other things. There's a trade-off because you're not infinite. You can't be perfectly fit, the most talented musician, the greatest singer, the world's best athlete, the richest person in the world, the smartest, learn 18 languages and father 18 children effectively and be the husband of the year and build a church and 
you can't do it all. Learn how to fix your own car and get a pilot's license. And, you know, some people think that 007 is a real thing. Like, you can actually know how to fire every weapon, drive every vehicle, speak every language. You can't. No one can do that unless you write it in a fictional script. And because we're not infinite, there are trade-offs in life where we have to say about one thing, I am not content with that. I want more. I want better. I am not going to accept where I am. But in other things, we say very readily, yeah, I'm all right with that. Good enough. So the same human being can experience this tension where, for example, um, they're relentlessly in pursuit of lowering their golf handicap. Your handicap's like a six. Yeah, but it could be a five after another year. I'm not, I'm not going to accept six is as good as it gets. And yet at the same time, that person relentlessly pursuing a lower golf handicap can be perfectly okay with his mediocre awareness of world events or pop culture. Or maybe you, you could be one person who says, I am relentlessly building this business, and so I admit I should exercise more, watch what I eat. But right now, my physical fitness is not the most important thing. I'm not going to say that I'm where I should be, but I'm okay with that. It's good enough for now because something else matters even more to me in this season. Do you understand the concept? So that everybody in this room understands contentment and discontentment. It is happening right now, and anyone who really knows you could fill out that list for you right now. I know where you are relentlessly in pursuit of more or better, where you're not accepting the status quo. And then I also know where you've already said, yeah, I wave the white flag. What are you going to do? I'm okay with it. Where I am here, it's good enough. And that's the big question that this passage, I think, is really exploring. Is when you look at your life, you learn a lot about what you value most by studying what you're content with and what you're not so ready to be content with. Do you get that? So there are plenty of people, for example, um, who are in the immigrant community who push their kids to be completely committed to academics, even if the kid has no social skills or athletic ability, it doesn't matter. Because I'm content with this stuff, but I'm not content with this stuff. And that's the way life seems to be. So what Paul is saying is you cannot accept contentment with worldly things unless you've found your ultimate contentment in something beyond those things. The human heart can't just stop hungering. It's not possible. In fact, if a human heart stops wanting and desiring and hungering, if it loses its capacity for ambition, it is dead or sick. It's not normal for human beings to say, I don't want or need or dream of anything. That's a sign of serious illness in the heart. It is natural to want The real question is, what do you want and what do you accept readily as it is? You know, I I remember recently at a speaking engagement, uh, certain churches, when I travel to speak, they go overboard in showing hospitality to the speaker. I feel like a visiting diplomat or king of a small country or something. They treat me so well. And this one church, just before I boarded the plane, they knew that I was going to be at the airport for like two hours waiting. So they put together this huge shopping bag. It's like a care package. And the guy hands it to me as I'm getting out of the car. I'm like, thank you. And I go and sit down in the the ticketing area. And I look, and it's like filled with this ginormous Asian salad. And then about 18 beverages, delicious beverages of all kinds. 
And I realized I have a problem here because I want to keep all of them, but they're not going to let me take it past security. So what do I do? Because I've got like those Starbucks fraps and I've got these, these all-natural organic iced teas and you know, it's good stuff, all of it. And I started, I started chugging. <laughs> and I was sick to my stomach, just chugging and chugging. I'm like, I don't think this is how I'm supposed to enjoy it. But what am I going to do? Because here's the reality. When I get to security, that TSA guy is going to go, you can't. No, here's a, here's a garbage can full of bottles of beverages. Throw yours in with the rest. I think that's the idea that Paul's appealing to. He says, the reason it's stupid to seek your contentment in worldly things only is because here's the truth. We're all going to pass through the TSA of the cosmos one day. And you're going to exit this world like me, carrying exactly as much as you brought in. How freaked out would you be if after your baby came out, a suitcase came out with them? What is that? That's not normal. You come in naked holding nothing, and that's exactly how you will go out. When Paul connects contentment with the reality that one day we're going to leave this world and everything with it, he's making a huge statement. What he's saying is you have to approach earthly life with eternity in view or you won't get it right. If you don't connect eternal life and this earthly life, you will screw up both of those lives. You will be lost doubly if you don't realize a strong connection between those two things. The fact that you're going to leave life empty-handed shows you that it is foolishness to spend your whole life accumulating things and finding your contentment in that when just like me, it's like going to the beverage store moments before you get to the airport. There is really no point to it at all. You know that old saying that there are no U-Hauls behind hearses? In the old days, when a king died, they would kill all these servants and soldiers and bury all this food and gold so that they would be rich in the afterlife as well. What a waste of resources in human lives because you can't take anything with you. And Jesus, therefore, reminds us that if you're going to spend your life accumulating treasure, be wise. Don't devote your life to accumulating treasure, which at the end of your life, you're going to have to just hand off to someone else. No one will applaud you. Someone might say, thanks, dead person, for making me instantly rich. And then they will speak your name once a year, perhaps, until they forget you. And you will have spent your whole life building this treasure, which you have to let go of the moment you die. And instantly, the work of your whole life will belong to someone else. And I think what God says is, what a tragic way for you to have spent the whole journey on this planet. When instead, you could have been laying up for yourselves treasures that will have great benefit beyond the veil of death. I'm reminded of college students, even some closely related to me, who for a time are on campus enjoying what's right in front of them. New friends, 
new opportunities, new social places, new events, a new church, all of it. It's exciting. It's for the moment. And that's part of what college is for, is the excitement of campus life. But foolish is the student who enjoys those things and forgets to study because studying is how you lay up treasures past graduation. If you squeeze college for all its social worth and forget to study, you're going to finish with a lot of friends and no future. I think that's the picture for a lot of us. We're so bent on enjoying what's right in front of me now, we forget that one day I will cross over into an eternity where a very different economics will measure my life. How many of you watch The Walking Dead? It's okay to confess. I watch it too. The most worthless thing in The Walking Dead would be a suitcase full of cash. You couldn't buy a pair of chopsticks with a suitcase full of cash because in that whole new reality, what once made someone powerful and rich means nothing. It really is worth less than the paper it's printed on. And someday, you're going to face a new reality and a new kingdom where all the things that you boasted in here will have no value. You said, but I can't. I can't have wasted it all. I was so rich. And everyone looks at you and goes, what does that have to do with anything here? What did you lay up that would be eternal? When we're told to learn contentment, it's not because God wants us to lower our bar for worldly things, but to awaken to this fact that the best that this world has to offer is still only fleeting. And that he can rescue us from a wasted life by reminding us of eternity before we stand at the, at the foot of the door. To tell us you can live for more right now. You don't have to join the masses living for something that's going to pass away. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, 5 to 6, makes another important contribution to this whole story. He writes, don't love money, but be satisfied with what you have. Very standard Christian teaching. But how is this possible? How can any human being live this way? To, be, to not love money and be satisfied with what we have now. And here's what he says. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying is part of the way we achieve a state of contentment with the world is that rather than a bunch of stuff that makes us feel safe about the future, God offers the promise of himself, and he says, I will have your back. Now, that doesn't mean you'll never struggle, that you'll never experience loss, but what it does mean is nothing will happen to you simply because I ran out of power, that I was not able, that I failed you. God will never say, dang, the reason that happened was because I really tried, but I couldn't do it. 
What God is saying is if things happen to us, it will line up with part of his plan for us, but he will never allow us to experience harm because he couldn't do anything better for us. It also says we will never experience struggle and loss and pain simply because God turned his back on us. He will never abandon us. You know, I can't promise a lot to my children, but I can echo the promise of God to us and say to my kids, if you find yourself in a million dollars of debt, I will cry right next to you. I have nothing more to offer than my sympathy, but I can tell you this, I will be with you every step of the way, and if I can do anything in my power, I will do it all. That I can't guarantee you a perfect, flawless future, but I can guarantee you a future that as long as dad draws breath, you will not be fatherless. As long as I breathe, you will have a father who stands with you and does everything he can to watch over you. You won't be alone if I'm alive. I think that's the great blessing. It's not the promise that you will give me enough to face everything, but that you will be enough for me. And whatever I go through in this life, you will have my back, God. And you're going to walk with me every step of the way. I will have to face those trials regardless. But I would rather have God in my corner than a lot of money if I have to face something like illness or the breakdown of a treasured relationship, things where money has no relevance. I would much rather have the promise that God is with me. And if I really believe that, then I can endure this idea that I don't have everything I'd like to have down here, but I have enough right now. That I can trust that what God's assigned to me is what I need for this season. And that that hungering to go after more doesn't come from him, it comes from me. I can almost hear the gears running even as I preach. Does this mean God wants mediocrity from us, that we should have no expectations, that we shouldn't want nice things, and we should turn in our nice car and buy a junker tomorrow and all that? Of course, it doesn't mean that. But really what we're talking about is not your net worth or your portfolio, but your heart and where your heart finds its strength and its confidence. I want to do a little... um, I'm going to do a little exercise, just for a minute or two, okay? On your tables, you have a slip of paper. And here's what I'd like to ask of you. On the one side, it says content. And on the other side, it says discontent. I just want you to spend a couple minutes, but in absolute honesty, and make sure you fold it up and put it in your pocket. We don't want to know your secrets. Okay, don't leave this around. But here's what I want you to write. On the content side of the sheet... Write one or two things that you realize, even though you're not at the very top of the heap, you're okay with how things are. Maybe it's your waistline. Maybe it's the bottom line, your balance in your checking account. Maybe it's your golf game. I'm totally content with how much I stink at golf. I'm totally okay with it because it doesn't matter that much. So think about something in your life that you realize, "Ah, I'm actually content. What I have is enough. Maybe for some of you, what you're content with is, yeah, in my Christian life, I'm doing enough. I think where I am right now, is, it's enough. I go to church. I give offering. It's enough. If that's the truth, 
write that, that's okay. But think about where you have decided it's good enough. And on the other side, think about one or two things that you relentlessly pursue more or better, where you're not ready to accept mediocrity, where the status quo isn't enough and you feel driven to pursue more. So just take a couple minutes. If you get some music playing, that would be wonderful. And in a couple minutes, I'm going to come up and wrap up the message, and then we'll have time of communion and response, okay? Remember, don't write for an audience. This is a time for you to be truly honest with yourself. I can tell who is the most honest by how quickly you fold it up and put it in your pocket. <laughs> Feel free, as the service continues, if more things come to mind, just make sure you write that down, keep that paper, and then use this for ongoing reflection, because I think you'll learn a great deal about what really matters to you, who you are before God, by thinking about these things. I just want to conclude with this final thought, okay? It's interesting that Paul says that godliness accompanied by contentment, is great gain. So I don't think he's saying that ambition and desire are bad things. We should be driven. We should be hungry for gain. But the real question is, which gain drives us forward? What are you really hungry for that you continue to chase after? And the Bible is filled with examples that affirm how good it is to want more and better when what we desire is lined up with what God wants. Look at Paul's writings alone in 2 Corinthians 4.15. He says what he wants more is for more people to be reached with the gospel, for more glory to go to God. 
In 2 Corinthians 12, 15, he says, I want to be, to be more sacrificial to make a greater investment in you because you're someone I love. And when I find someone I love, all I want is to be able to do more for them, more for them. Think about the way a parent feels about their kid. It's good to want to be able to do more. And what he says is for the Christian, one of the signs of life is that I want, I yearn to do more for the people I love. I want to grow more in love, more in knowledge, more in understanding. Some of us have memorized certain motion pictures line by line, but haven't memorized the Bible verse in 15 years. It's good to want knowledge and understanding, but it's really good to be driven by a desire for more knowledge and understanding of who God is and what his kingdom is like. He says, I want to live more in a way that is pleasing to God. In other words, do you get the picture that gain is good, that ambition and desire are good things, especially when they drive us towards the things God wants to bless us with? You know, we're going to have a time of uh, response and communion soon. I want to invite the, the praise team to start making their way up here. I want you to think about that list of things you wrote on both sides of that paper, okay? And if there's something on the content side that really should be on the other side of the paper. Like maybe for too long, you've said, I'm okay with my health. My health isn't that big a deal to me. I'm driven by other things. Maybe it's time. But maybe most importantly, if you wrote on the content side, that I'm okay where I am as a Christian. What I do is enough. And maybe you sense the Holy Spirit saying to you, I think you've settled somewhere that he has more for you than what you've done. I want you to circle that thing later on. And if on the other side, there's something that you are driven by relentlessly, you want more, you want better, but God's saying, why is that so important to you? Is that really worth your whole life? Is it worth saying good enough to other things so that you can keep chasing this? Is it that valuable after all? And if as you pray about it, God, you sense him saying to you, slow down. What you already have is good enough. Put your hunger somewhere else. Put your hunger on something that's more eternal because this thing you're chasing, it's going to die eventually. Chase something that lasts forever. When I was 24 and I received my call to ministry, I was making a lot of money. I was sitting on top of the world. And I thought I could slowly, gradually ease into my new identity as a minister. The other people in my life weren't willing to cooperate with that idea. And I went from being a scientist to being a janitor in less than seven days. I was running DNA sequences one day And the next day, I was standing in front of a urinal, wiping urine stains and other things with a paper towel and a spray bottle. And I just remember thinking, God, I said yes to you, but have you betrayed me in some way? What is this? And I can tell you, looking back over the years, how important that change was for me and what I learned. The one one way I know for certain that God has come alive in me 
is that I can see the way that my level of contentment has truly grown. It's not a mind game. It's not self-hypnosis. I really am okay with things that would have horrified me in the past. I have settled on good enough in so many areas of my life where I once had ambitions and dreams and I hungered relentlessly. And when I see that level of contentment grow, it's one way I know that Jesus is alive in me and I'm changing. I want to give you that same invitation to think about what is on that side of the paper that you're content with, that you say good enough. And what's on the other side that says, no, I want more. I think more and more eternal things should end up on the discontent side of that page. So as we enter the time of communion, I want to leave you with that thought. We as followers of Jesus should set our hearts on things that are forever, not on things that are passing away. And I hope that the Holy Spirit will pursue us relentlessly until we really hear what he's saying to each of us. Let's pray, and then I'm going to invite Pastor Frank to come and lead us through communion. Holy Spirit, break down every last fence of resistance in our hearts against you. Lord, we we don't want to be so quick to say that we're doing okay. But we invite you to come and actually examine our hearts. And if we're living for things that are quickly going to pass away, change our hearts change our appetites and what we value. We also recognize, Lord, that it would be impossible for us to be content with our lot in this life unless we see that you are the one who walks with us every step of the way. So before we even pray for contentment with worldly things, we pray that you would come alive in us that we would each grow to treasure you as the greatest gift you could ever have given us. The gift of yourself. The gift of your promise that you will never fail us. You will never You are beauty unimagined This is who That you are enough for us. That you plus nothing else is everything. Bring us to a place we can say that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.